0: Episode 77 of Strange Brow Radio, I'm your host, Tobe Johnson, and here we go again, our guest today, OTO magician, Ren Collier, and the topic of sex magic. So, time to go to bed, children, and maybe adults, too, for different reasons. Uh, we go into some wild territory, but you got to do it, so listener discretion advised first don't cover your ears for this our sponsor Feral by Erin at Etsy.com alchemy sound devices and crone stones you gotta see a crone stone you can't just find these anywhere you gotta go to Feral by Erin E-R-Y-N hope y'all are having a good summer and it can be better if you shop at Etsy and find Feral by Aaron E. R. Y. N. Okay. In a moment, let me tell you more about Ren Collier. We'll be right back. Ren Collier, O-T-O magician, Uh, he knows quite a bit when it comes to the secret order, the secret schools, and a little bit more than the average person about ritual sex magic. So we go there, we talk about it, and uh, listener discretion advised on this one, folks, because there's some things discussed that aren't going to be everybody's cup of tea. But this has some history to it. In fact, JPL history to it. Jet Propulsion Laboratories or Jack Parson Laboratories. And if you don't know anything about the rocket program or potential space programs, secret space programs and how that would relate to ritual sex magic. Well, it does, and it's not steeped in rumor. It's, uh, a lot of this is steeped in fact. And the tentacles of it go all the way out into pop culture via things like Scientology and such. So anyway, a very interesting conversation with my friend and fellow remote viewer, actually Rens more of an accomplished remote viewer uh, teacher, and so uh, I am just a padawan in his presence when it comes to, to learning this. But we remote viewed for about two months together. Good guy. Solid conversation. But here we go down the uh, darkened rabbit hole of sex magic and such with Rin Collier. All right, with me today is Rin I guess we'd call him a classmate in our remote patrol sessions, which are now on pause. Hello, Ren.
1: Hey, Toby. It's actually Ren Collier. It's my uh, incognito name for Facebook. Oh, well, OK. All right. All right.
0: We'll go with Ren Miller then. All right, All right Ren. Um, you know, Ren, one of the terms that uh, has been uh, passed around regarding you on other podcasts mm-hmm. is that you're a magician mm-hmm. and uh, explain to people what kind of magician you are and okay. why you're a magician.
1: Okay, so so yeah, I'm a practicing magician. Um, I am a Thelemite, which is a kind of devotee of uh, Thelema, which is a religion that was started by Aleister Crowley, um, although I'm not a very religious person in general. Uh, I just I, I like. I'm also like an anarchist, so I like the the, the message of Thelma that everyone's equal and that you know everyone should be free. Um, but my magic, I'm. I have a very like scientific approach to magic. Like I consider it a technology first and foremost, um, and i 'm happy to use whatever works, and a lot of my passion revolves around uh, trying to rebuild the the broken systems of Western magic um, like a lot of people don 't realize like how fragmented the Western magical tradition is um, like Eastern magical traditions like say Tao like Taoist magic are very complete whole systems that have been preserved through you know, tons of generations, uh, you know, for thousands of years. The Western magical tradition, on the other hand, has no such lineage and is fragmented. And even so far back as like the Greek magical papyri. You see that that is made up of a hodgepodge of Jewish magic and Egyptian magic and Greek magic. So the magic that I work with most right now um, is Renaissance angel magic sort of a particular kind that was popular in Europe and in uh, England in say like this 1600s, 1700s. It mostly revolves around using a specific set of tools in order to conjure angels into crystals. Um, And then that can be utilized for different practical. I mean, you can get information from them, uh, chat with them, you can ask them to do things for you. And different angels have different sort of stations and abilities to do to carry out things in the physical world. Um, are these angels that people would
0: recognize, like Raphael or Michael, things like that? Or are these yeah. angels of a different realm, different nature?
1: No, uh, literally the, the angels people are mostly familiar with, yeah. So you have the four archangels, uh, Mikael, Raphael, Gabriel, and Uriel. And then you have angels of the uh, planets, So, like, the angel of Mars, um, you know, the angel of Saturn, Cassiel, uh, the angel of Jupiter, Zadkiel. And a lot of this derives from uh, Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa's three books of occult philosophy. Like, that's sort of my textbook that I work from, Um, in addition to Francis Barrett's uh, The Magus, which The Magus itself is mostly just plagiarized, like, Agrippa, uh, along with some stuff from, like, Agrippa's fourth book, which is by pseudo Agrippa, because people aren't really sure if uh, Agrippa wrote the fourth book or not, or somebody just using his name. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, but this is kind of just the, the 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 current magical system that I have been working with the most over the past couple of years, because um, it was really only over the past three, three years or so that my magical practice has become uh, more serious and less just, you know, dabbling. Um, because I, I got initiated into the Ordo Templi Orientis up here, and part of the OTO's program up here um, is a ritual, like a ritual magic workshop evening, uh, every Tuesday night, that's run by Scott Stenwick, and he has sort of become my mentor, and Scott's main focus in his magical tradition is Enochian magic, which if people are familiar with, like the uh, sort of Enochian system of John D. It, it, Enochian is sort of a another variant of like British angel magic. Um, it uses a different set of angels that people wouldn't be familiar with. Uh, but um, the system I use is more a- akin to the spirits that uh, like are documented by Agrippa.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your knowledge of the angel hierarchy, because that's interesting mm-hmm. to me. I think it'd be interesting to the audience. As far as this hierarchy is concerned, it's almost like a regiment uh, like you would look at in the military. Is that my understanding, that there is a pecking order, uh, a ranking system?
1: Yeah, I sort of see it almost as like a, a governance, right? Because I have a very Neoplatonic view of reality, and this this ties into my magical work. Like, if you imagine that at some point, beyond everything, you have this unknowable mind of God, right, in which... It's this completely unknowable, undifferentiated thing. and it filters out through and we use the planets uh, as sort of a model here, right? Now, I don't think there is literally an angel of Mars, right? like of the physical planet Mars, but Mars is sort of like the the let's say it's like the metaphor for this, right So as the mind of God filters down through these other spheres. So, you know, the moon, Mars, Saturn, uh, Jupiter, Venus, Mercury, the sun, you have different occult virtues or qualities that are associated with those different planets. Um, Like Mars is associated with warfare and strife and also like male physical power. Uh, Jupiter is associated with rulership and wealth. Uh, Mercury is associated with uh, not only business but learning and magic. Uh, the sun is, um, you know, all about warmth and kindness, and, and the moon is about like manifestation or whatever. So anyway, the, the the angels or the spirits of these different spheres are sort of like governors. They direct these energies and sort of dole them out into what we experience as the physical world. Okay. And
0: so we're thinking, we're, I, just so mm-hmm. we're clear, we're, you're talking symbolically. Symbolically, yeah. The, okay. So you don't believe yeah. in the literal interpretation of there being governance over Mars by an angelic host.
1: Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I, 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 this is more of like a symbology rather than there being like, you know, literally an angel of Mars. <laughs> um, it's like a useful symbolic, symbolical uh, model uh for, for, Understanding like how creation filters down from you know sort of the Ein the unknowable mind of God, into what we experience as day-to-day life, um, and each of these spheres has you know an archangel that governs it, and under that archangel there are uh, intelligent. There's an intelligence for each planet, and there's a spirit or a demon for each planet. Um, the intelligence is sort of like the mind. Of, those, of that energy and the demon or spirit is sort of like the action of it. So in, in the conjurations we'll do uh, at the lodge in our group working and in my own private practice, uh, it's, it's a process of conjuring the, the archangel who rules over a sphere um, and then conjuring the intelligence of that sphere using the authority of the archangel. And then conjuring the, the demon or the spirit of the sphere using the authority vested in you by the intelligence. It's like a, a, lot of, a lot of spirit, like conjuration magic works like this. It's a lot of like different levels of authority because you see the same thing in like, let's say uh, like demon conjuration or Goetia in which you like, if you conjure a spirit and they don't show up, you're supposed to petition their, their ruler. Right? Because every, every demon has somebody that's above him. Right? So you literally call, to, like, speak to the manager. Right. <laughs> and you say, hey, like, where's your boy? I need him to do something for me. If he doesn't show up, I'm going to, you know, you need to punish him. And it's, it's like this, this uh, continuing, like, escalation of appeal. Uh, one interesting thing is that with, with, with demonic work, when you're working with uh, chthonic spirits, a lot of the time it's start at the bottom and work up right? Start at the lowest level you can and then work up to you know, presidents and the dukes and finally the kings if you have to. Um, with angels, it's almost the exact opposite because a lot of times you're working down. You're starting with the archangel and then you're working down sort of these layers. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I never thought about it like that, but uh, just talking about it on right. the show.
0: Right. Is there, now, so we've moved away from symbolism to mm-hmm. what I feel is an actual being. Are we Mm-hmm. Is that what we're doing? We're now moving into, a, you know, the physical
1: state of contacting a being. Oh yeah, yeah. These these angels that I'm I'm speaking of, and and demons and stuff, they're real in the sense that like you can call them up and talk to them. Now, physically real, I don't know. Like I, I don't subscribe to the psychological model that they're, you know, all parts of the human brain or they're different archetypes of the human personality or something. I think that they are spirits that have agency and have minds of their own and have their own, uh, you know, wants and desires and and sort of motivations. Um, And that's something people have to be aware of uh, when they work with these spirits or they they conjure them and talk to them. Is that, that, that's the problem a lot of UFO contactees run into, right, when they start Getting high on their own supply and they listen to the spirits and the spirits are telling them, Oh, you're the chosen one. We've got a message for mankind and we need you to spread it and stuff, and they just eat it up. And Mm -hmm. you know, my thing is, you never believe a spirit's BS. You know, (laughs) like that's just that's asking for trouble.
0: Okay, so of course, you know, I'm gonna go back to the screw tape letters with C.S. Lewis where he talks Mm -hmm. about the mind of a demon. Uh, trying to persuade the mind of man
1: mm-hmm. and
0: how to basically stroke their ego, uh, you know, yeah, more or less to mm-hmm. trick them. So is that the ultimate goal over what people would traditionally call a demon or a trickster of some nature is to, um, you know, detour man's mission from their maker? What? How do you feel about that?
1: Well, there's different schools of thought on this. Um, there is a sort of tradition that, one of the reasons the, like, let's say we're talking about the Solomonic tradition where you have these these demons that were bound by King Solomon and forced, kind of pressed into the service of mankind. Uh, the idea is that they are like sort of fallen spirits, right? And by doing things for humans, they can sort of maybe atone for their crimes and be allowed back into heaven. That's one way of looking at it. Um, I'm not necessarily... I don't necessarily believe that strongly in that mythology. So that doesn't necessarily speak to me that much. Um, I think they're like, they're like anybody, you know, you meet some people, some people are honest with you. Some people are nice to you. Some people want to help you. Some people want to trick you and manipulate you and use you. You just have to be able to understand, like you have to be able to question things. You have to be able to think mm-hmm. for yourself. Um, at, Cause I think different spirits have different goals. I mean, if you look at the Enochian, spirits that John Dee called up, they seem to have this plan of building, like, a British empire, right, for some reason. A lot of times, I think the actual motivations of these spirits are a little arcane, like, maybe it's hard for us to tell, because they're working on timelines that are far beyond the span of a human life, right? Um, John Brennan, or G.H. Brennan, wrote a really good book about this called Whisperers, uh, where he sort of discusses the history of how world events have been influenced by spirit contact, um, both like say in Nazi Germany or John D. Zenokian angels and how it seems like there are different groups of spirits and they each have their own agendas. And sometimes they're at odds with each other and humans kind of end up being the pawns in their relationships, you know, which is a very like, I don't know, Greek way of thinking about it. Like, you know, right. in, it in sounds the Odyssey.
0: like uh, something out of the Odyssey or clash of the Titans, you mm-hmm.
1: know? Yeah, uh,
0: Let me ask you what you've seen, Rin, um, as far as entities or what you've physically mm-hmm. contacted.
1: So I wish that I could say that I've gotten a full visual manifestation, but that's still something I'm working towards. Um, other people who I respect claim that is a thing that can happen. Um, that, you know, if you do everything right, uh, you can just see a you know, a demon appear in front of you as as real as someone really standing in front of you. Um, Most of my experiences have been far less dramatic than that. Um, But what I have found is that, like, the effects are the same. I've gotten the things I asked for, even if I couldn't necessarily see the spirit. Um, I've seen some things, like shadowy forms. Um, One time I was doing a ritual, and I these three sort of really thin threads of light like straight columns of light appeared in my room Um, i know one time we were doing a group ritual at the at the lodge and uh, we use a thing called a table of practice which is like a circular round wooden disc that acts as sort of a a focus for the ritual and as we were doing and i started to see this like kind of black mist like start swirling in the middle of it and that was very odd because it's one of those things where it's like, you can't tell if your eyes are playing tricks on you or if you're really seeing it. You know, it's almost, it. You, well, you know, from remote viewing, right? Sometimes it's hard to tell if you're actually doing it because it's so like, you know, something's happening but it's so subtle that it's like, it feels off though. And a lot of the time, I think I'll feel a presence in the room. Like if I, that's usually how I gauge whether or not a spirit is there like I'll be doing the ritual, I'll be saying the names, I'll be chanting the incantations and stuff. And eventually it feels like all of a sudden the room gets heavy or the room gets a little darker, or the air gets thick. And it feels like somebody's suddenly standing in the room with you. And it's, it's sometimes hard to gauge, like if that's just your imagination or you just psyching yourself out, or if that's really, really there. Um, I think a lot of people go into this expecting it to be much more Hollywood than it, than it really is. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do think that, that the sort of full visual manifestation, like you would see in a movie, it's a thing that can happen. I just think it's exceedingly rare and probably only something that happens to people who've been doing this for a long time, or maybe the circumstances are very ideal for it or something. One of the things you brought up I think is interesting
0: is this idea of, you know, pointing at you being special. You're unique. Mm -hmm. You're this golden Mm -hmm. child. But Mm -hmm. that seems to actually happen to people where there are people that have these meetings. They have contact with the others quite Mm -hmm. often. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you know anybody like that? And have you ever worked with them to amp up your own experience?
1: Hmm. Sort of in a, in a way. Okay. So I talked to, I don't know if you're familiar with Shirley black. No. Okay. So she is a multiple NDE experiencer. Um, and I would wager probably one of the most, uh, this is a corny way to put it, but one of the most powerful psychics on the planet in terms of like psychokinesis, right? Like being able to affect electronics and move things with her mind. Um, there are a number of research papers that are about her. They don't name her by name, you know, because it's a it's a research paper, um, but she worked with Dr. Michael Persinger quite a bit. And so I've read some of those papers and I've, I've talked to Cheryl Lee on many occasions. Um, I've never had the, the opportunity to meet her in person, mm-hmm. but the thing that Cheryl Lee has she has been a like invaluable resource. Uh, like if I ever have a question about site, like sci research, she knows the answer to it, or she can point me to a research paper that can help answer the questions mm-hmm. and stuff. And so I really look up to her. Um, mm-hmm. you know, she, she's just a, a very sweet lady, a very humble lady. And I, I really value being able to like talk to her occasionally, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I mean her, but I don't know how much it's affected my own practice. I guess. Like uh, on the other hand, you know, I, I'm in contact a lot with my mentor Scott at the OTO Lodge, who has, you know, taught me more about doing magic and working with spirits in the last year and a half than I had learned in ten years of just reading books. You know, actually like going out and doing it, and having someone in person. Right, that knows a lot about this stuff that can really guide you through it. It is really super nice. And the, and the nice thing is is that like someone like Scott and someone like Cheryl Lee, they don't think of themselves as leaders or chosen ones or anything like that. Like Scott constantly asks me to question anything he says. And mm-hmm. if I ever bring up a if I ever argue with him about something or I have a different idea on it, he never tells me, Well, you're wrong, or like, you know, my idea is the only way it works or whatever. You know he's very open to other opinions mm-hmm. and which which is very refreshing because I, I feel like there's a lot of big egos in the occult and, mm-hmm. and it's annoying sometimes. Well, you're super intuitive I mean just
0: working with you the past couple of months uh, via a video connection, I see mm-hmm. how easily you lock into something to me uh, I look at as extremely difficult, and <laughs> uh, you know being a passive remote viewer. Mm -hmm. I I don't feel like I excel at. I'm always surprised if I hit the target, and most Mm -hmm. people listening to this won't really know the jargon, but Mm -hmm. um, as someone who is an intuitive, someone that has these unique abilities, who already has taught remote viewing, have you been approached to help out with an active case, and can you talk about that?
1: Um, I haven't. well, first of all, don't sell yourself short, <laughs> because I promise you, I have almost the same feelings about it that you do. I'm always surprised when I actually hit the target, and there is a lot of uh, a nervousness that I have going into it, right? Mm-hmm. Thinking that oh, this is never going to work, or I'm not going to be able to do it. Um, and and honestly, like the the sessions that we've done together, our group, like everyone is hitting on something in the target. Um, so so I definitely think all of you. Are uniquely good at remote viewing, um, but well, we
0: have a pretty good teacher too. She's pretty good yeah, cool yeah. about the whole thing, so it, it helps. Yeah. But I, I am perpetually shocked at anything I do that matches a target. And, <laughs> um, it uh, it always surprises me, even though mm-hmm. I know how real everything you and I are talking about mm-hmm. is. Uh, when it strikes in the face of you, and we can mm-hmm. switch up gears here real quick and digress on this. Are you perpetually shocked at the supernatural when it presents itself, even though you're steeped in to you know rituals and communicating with angels, does it still reach the fleshly
1: side of Ren and you're blown away? Honestly, have you ever read The Invisibles? No. Okay. There's there's a part where um this guy is doing a ritual and uh the main one of the main characters, King Mob, appears uh because of the ritual. And King Mob says something like, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, it's always surprising when it works, isn't it? And that's that's how I really feel. Like yeah, it, it never ceases to make me feel like childlike joy when it when it actually mm-hmm. works, you know. And and mm-hmm. it works more than it doesn't work, which is always also a pleasant surprise, mm-hmm. you know. Like and sometimes it doesn't work sometimes you do a ritual and it's a bust, and whatever you ask for doesn't mm-hmm. happen or you know you're way off target on your remote mm-hmm. viewing it happens it's not a and i think that's why a lot of people get hung up on, especially like skeptics mm-hmm. it's it's like it's not it's not uh a, you know we can we can study it scientifically, but it's not a science right like it's not one hundred percent reliable it can't be replicated on command in a laboratory but yeah it's always it's always a mm-hmm. joy when when you know when you when you see it happen it but never you ceases call, to be you surprising. Call it a
0: tech which i thought was an interesting term to title magic so yep. this tech uh, can it be upgraded and uh, you know amplified like you'd get a you know a, a reboot on your phone does it uh, mm-hmm. have a system update have you uh, locked into to how to update your magic
1: <laughs> I, I do think, yeah, it is a, it is a technology, um, even if it's not one hundred percent reliable. But I don't know. Neither is your car or your computer. Um, I think that the way that it improves is through more people doing magic uh, and and sharing notes with each other. What works, what doesn't work. Uh, you know, being brave enough to throw out stuff that you may be wedded to if it doesn't work. You know, like having having the sort of intellectual curiosity to branch out and explore other things. Like um, how familiar are you with like, like Bruce Lee and like Jeet Kundo? Well, very
0: limited. Uh, of course, I know Bruce Lee, but I don't know anything beyond his talent.
1: Yeah. So the idea behind his sort of martial art Jeet Kundo was that like, let's take all of the best aspects of each martial art, right. And not worry about adhering to one specific system or, one specific tradition like let's take what works and leave what doesn't and that's how i see like a lot of people who did i think that's why you thought like about chaos magic a lot of people who were like chaos magicians in the 90s and stuff that was kind of the the ethic or the ethos there too like they wanted to but their problem was they tried to they tried to that's the word i'm looking for? Like, reduce everything to, to atomize everything down to some fundamental level, and in so doing, leave behind a lot of useful parts of it. Like, uh, the really, this is a silly example, but a lot of the, the famous Chaos Magician thing, I can't remember which book it's in, but, but the idea is that anything, you can conjure anything, you can just make up something and conjure it. You know, you can conjure Superman. Or you can conjure a cat riding a skateboard, you know, like, because it's all in your head. And I just, I think going that far was a negative because some of these things do have an existence beyond humans, right? Like some of these gods and spirits and stuff, they've been around for a long time. And maybe we made them up a long time ago, but maybe they have an existence that's external to us. And, and leaving all that behind, I think, was a, was a mistake. Um, but uh, the reason I was talking about the Jeet Kune Do and the idea of taking all of these different things and, and using what works is, uh, like, that's how I approach magic, right? I didn't initially have any interest in doing angel magic, but I saw the kind of results I was getting through my group work with Scott at the Lodge, and I said, okay, like, let's continue down this path because there's something here Um, but I'm always thinking like what can I learn from this and apply it to other magical systems and what can I improve on Uh and that requires experimentation and it requires data collection and it requires like sharing that Uh information with other people and having other people try to replicate your results you know that's that's why I said you could study it scientifically right like you should publish what you're doing and you should talk about it you should list what parts you used or what magical tools you used and what the phase of the moon was and what zodiac sign like share every little data point that you can get share it and then have other people compare notes and that that's the only way this this art like progresses
0: right right when you're describing it, it almost sounds like you're describing tech you know mm-hmm. we moved away from myspace to facebook it was mm-hmm. sleeker you know it, it sounds like you're describing uh some you know type of social media app that uh, catches on and is yeah. easier to access
1: yeah. And, and, and in general, I have a more pragmatic view of, of magic than I think a lot of people do. A lot of people for, for, well, not a lot of people, for some people, magic is a spirituality. You know, They, they it, it's almost like a religion. And to me, it's not. It is a system of interacting with the world around me on a paracausal basis. Like, um, so for me, I, I'm not wedded to any one particular God or set of spirits, you know, I don't do devotional stuff, you know, to, to spirits. I don't make, I have exactly one altar. Um, You know, I, some people really get into, I don't want to say they're worshiping spirits, you know, but just like, I just, I just can't do that. You know, I, I I don't want to supplicate myself to anything. So wait, you've never
0: been tempted to, point your compass towards one specific?
1: I I do and I well, there is one specific entity and that that's the one I have the altar for. And I can't really say much more than that. But I will say that that she has been quite good to me and has repaid the respect Mm -hmm. that I've been showing her. Um but I also don't necessarily devote myself to Mm -hmm. it. You know, like a lot of, a lot of traditions are very devotional in nature and I've never been able to get down with that. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, I just, more than anything, I just want people to, to try this stuff Mm -hmm. on their own because I was, I was thinking about this the other night, because I've been reading David Morehouse's book on remote viewing. And one thing he talks, he has this whole section about talking to skeptics and stuff. And I was thinking to myself, like, what's the point? like trying to explain some of the stuff to someone who comes at it already with like a skeptical mind. And I don't mean skeptical in the sense of like questioning it. I think listeners of the show know what I mean, like a, a dismissive skepticism, right? Um, it's like trying to describe what color is to someone who was born blind. You know, they're never going to get it. There's nothing that you can say. Mm-hmm. There's no research paper that you can show them. There is no evidence that you can produce that will ever be good enough for them. Right? because that's not the that's not the point that's not what they're trying to do um and i really think it's just personal experience you know people have to right. experience this stuff to understand
0: mm-hmm. it well people that peek down this rabbit hole with mm-hmm. you let's say someone like me takes a look down this rabbit hole. i imagine mm-hmm. i'm going to see similar things and experience similar things that mm-hmm. you're experiencing now maybe i interpret it differently but mm-hmm. uh as far as looking down the world of cryptozoology and experiencing Mm -hmm. the supernatural nature of that. Mm -hmm. I don't know too many cryptozoologists who peer down the rabbit hole and honestly say, there's nothing here supernatural going on. They may deny it, but they never go back the same way. Have you ever seen that in the realm of uh, people that look into the angelic host, uh, you know, that say, you know, this Mm -hmm. is nothing but bullshit?
1: I think some people look at it, like I mentioned the psychological model earlier, some people look at, say, and this is partially because of Crowley, because when he did uh, his version of the, the La Megatons, Goetia, uh, with Mathers, he has this whole foreword where he says the the Goetic demons are simply uh, parts of the human brain, like they're parts of the human personality, and that is total bs and crowley knew it was bs i still don't know why he wrote that uh, because anyone who does five minutes of work with this realizes pretty quickly that these things aren't just coming from your head um, but there are people who who seem to still believe that and i don't understand it but um more than anything like you were talking i think you're referencing to like that that sort of division in cryptozoology, and I hear about this from like Josh Cutchin and, and Tim, that there's this sort of divide between people who say, oh, well, it is uh, primarily a like a paranormal phenomena and people who are turds and tracks, you know, like it's a purely physical thing. Um, and I, I think the problem is on both sides in that they're sticking to this Cartesian dualism in which there is a separation between, say, the physical world and the imaginal world. You know, when in reality, I think it's something much more akin to what Patrick Harper talks about in Daimonic Reality, that it's much more muddled than that. Some things can be physical and they can also be paranormal at the same time. You know, like a Bigfoot can leave tracks and it can leave hair behind. It can also... you know, levitate and disappear into thin air, Mm -hmm. you know, and like one thing, it doesn't even mean they're a different thing, you know, it's just Mm -hmm. that they're. we tend to think of the world in these like two extremes, when in Mm -hmm. reality, things are much more complicated than that. No, I can't hear you, uh, Toby, I think you. Oh, can you hear me now?
0: Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about Aleister Crowley uh, regarding- Uh, your, did you say he was a mentor?
1: Well, okay, so I consider myself a Thelemite. Um, but even that is kind of loose in that my version of Thelema is probably a little different from... Uh, I know it's different from some some Thelemites. Um, but Crowley founded Thelema. The basic idea of Thelema, and people have probably heard this in other places, but there's just one law, and the law is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Uh, Love is the law, love under will. And a lot of people look at that as, well, that's just an excuse to act however you want, do whatever Mm -hmm. you want. And I don't know, maybe Crowley meant it like that. But for me, it is more a statement Mm -hmm. about how people should be free to live how they want to live. Um, people should be free to pursue their dreams, people should be free to think what they want to think and move how they want to move and love who they want to love. Uh, it doesn't mean mm-hmm. that, you're, that you should abuse other people, because abusing other people takes away their right, the right. to do that. You know,
0: It sounds like my discussion with a professor that I had that was a member of the Temple of Satan, the only mm-hmm. problem was with him is that he believed in a creator, which I yeah. think it uh, does nearly jive with uh, the Temple of Satan, but mm-hmm. um, would it be similar to someone who's a Satanist?
1: I think LeVay got a lot of his ideas from Crowley, mm-hmm. uh, from the book of the law, that whole do what thou wilt thing. Um, it, I guess it depends on what kind of Satanism you're talking about. If you're talking about um, the Satanism as like rebellion against Christianity, basically. Um, I know there's also Satanists who are atheists and they Mm -hmm. just, uh, like, it's like a weird kind of libertarianism.
0: Right, like hardcore liberal uh, mindset, right? Like they pack their political views deeply into it.
1: I suppose it's similar. Um, I have like kind of a more, the the problem I have with a lot of, uh, I guess, Satanists and libertarians is that it it tends to devolve into solipsism. Like, I'm the only person who matters. Like, only my desires matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not beholden to anybody. I can do whatever I want, and only the strong, you know, should survive. Right. And I don't jive with that at all because I'm very much a lefty. Like, you know, I'm mm-hmm. like an anarcho-syndicalist. Like, I want everyone <laughs> uh, yeah. to, like, have equality. I want everyone to be free to, like, live the life they want to live. Right. You know, free from state control, free from state violence, um, but also like in a way Mm -hmm. that we mutually benefit each other, you know, like communities where we take care of. And that's, that's been the nice thing about this whole COVID thing is that you see a lot of people coming together and taking care of each other. And not worrying about the government taking care of them, but just taking care of each other and their communities.
0: Right. Maybe not their fellow man, because none of them have masks on, but uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're definitely taking care of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, it, why did Crowley have such a bad rap? I mean, most of what you will bring up uh, regarding him has a tagline of, you know, thought of the most evil man in the world, the great, <laughs> the great beast. So where, where did it go wrong? Or do you battle with parts of him that you can't, you know, justify?
1: I do. I mean Corley is a complicated figure. Um, you know, I, I think the Book of the Law is a genuinely channeled, beautiful piece of literature. Um, I think his writing, uh, it's a really short thing that he did called Liber Oz. It's basically like a statement of human rights, I think is is really great. It's kind of makes up the, the basis of my how I see the world. Um, but he's a complicated figure in that he's also uh not that there's anything wrong with doing drugs, I've done plenty of them, but you know, he was an addict and uh, abused drugs quite severely. Mm-hmm. Um, he abused people. He manipulated people. Uh, he would do sex magic with women who weren't aware of what he was doing, mm-hmm. um, which, which I find incredibly gross. Um, you know, right. and, and there were a lot of things that Crowley, you know, it, it, nobody's perfect. You know, like I don't <laughs> right. I don't consider I don't consider Crowley like a prophet or even a very good person.
0: I love I know I just named the episode Crowley. Nobody's perfect.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: you know, it. he he he's a person, but it's like it's it's kind of one of those things, right? Like I think Roman Polanski's a scumbag. Mm-hmm. But Rosemary's Baby is still one of my favorite movies of all <laughs> right. time. Oh, or The yeah. Pianist,
0: right? That's yeah. beautiful. Yeah, I, I know. I, I, I sense the battle, right? I mean, mm-hmm. Tom Cruise is another guy. Mm-hmm. We, we all battle with risky business. We've lost Tom Cruise <laughs> to Scientology, but mm-hmm. um, don't get me started on that. But no, so he, I mean, this is a very interesting conversation because here he wrote a book that you spoke highly of. Mm-hmm. You felt like it was channeled inspiration of beauty and yet the fleshly world, his humanness, corrupted his message? Is
1: that what you believe? It's not so much it corrupted his message. It's just that the, um, like, let's call them the secret chiefs. Uh, they kind of picked a guy whose ego was going to get in the way of bringing about the world that they wanted to bring about. Uh, you know, Crowley founded or he didn't found the OTO. He, he took over the OTO and made it into his own thing. Um, and the OTO, you know, fell apart. Uh, it was kicked out of Europe during the rise of the Nazis. And in the U.S., uh, you know, there was still the Agape Lodge, where a lot of people are familiar with, like, Jack Parsons and L. Ron Hubbard, and those guys were all in that lodge. And a lot of ways, Agape Lodge was kind of a precursor to the free love hippie movement. You know, it's a mm-hmm. lot of sex drugs and rock and roll, not a lot of spiritual development. Um, and, well, let's go, explain to people mm-hmm. the term agape. Agape is just, uh, it's Greek for love. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you'll see thelemites say 93 to each other. Like, uh, you know, they'll start their letters like 93s or ninety three ninety three ninety three. The The number 93 in like Greek Iosophy or, I think I'm pronouncing that wrong, but mm-hmm. whatever, um, like gematria, like it, the number, like how you take letters and turn them into numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, the Greek word for will is thelema, The Greek word for love is agape. And if you translate both of those to numbers, they both equal 93. And so okay. it, it illuminates a relationship between the two things like love and will are sort of the same thing. Um, but yeah agape lodge itself was uh was an o t o lodge in i believe Pasadena california mm-hmm. um it? yeah i think it was i think it was in Pasadena and uh, it was most famous because the um it was the lodge that rockets you know kind of the father of modern rocketry uh jack parsons ended up joining. And there's a there's a television show about this called Strange Angel that was on CBS, all access, I think, that I really enjoyed. It's a bit silly. It's a bit, you know, it's it's made for TV, so it kind of takes liberties with certain aspects of the story. Um, but I still kind of liked it. It it still kind of captures the uh the sense of like what it is to actually go to a lodge and see a Gnostic Mass performed. Um, Although everyone in the TV show is way sexier and and (laughs) younger than anyone who is going to an OTO lodge these days.
0: (laughs) (laughs) They're all super hot. Yeah. (laughs) Regarding Jack Parsons, it's such an Mm -hmm. interesting story. Um, I only know a little bit of it. And Mm -hmm. I know that uh, when you think of Rockets Mm -hmm. and Jack Parsons, I mean, you shouldn't think of magic. You shouldn't think of these other things he was Mm -hmm. involved with. So Describe a little bit if you know uh, for the audience who he was and how Mm -hmm. he's connected to all this.
1: Yeah, and and yet before every single rocket test, uh, Jack Parsons would uh, do the invocation to Pan to prepare for it. Uh, Jack Parsons is a really cool figure, you know, he's again a complicated figure like Crowley. Uh, We'll get into that in just a moment, but he he was mainly just a nerd that really enjoyed science fiction and I think was was looking for a world that didn't quite exist in the one that he grew up in. It's sort of this kind of upper middle class, you know, white Pasadena, California kind of community in the 19, what is it, 1930s. Um, yeah, it'd be the 1940s. And so Parsons i think he gets uh i think he gets introduced to someone from agape lodge via like a science fiction book club or something and he ends up starting to go uh him and his wife helen parsons they both start going together and fairly quickly uh parsons ends up ousting the existing body master there uh Wilfred talbot smith um Now, Parsons, at the same time, is getting involved with the rocketry program there. um, That it's like just starting, right? He's helping to kind of build this from the ground up, like he, him and his team were uh, some of the first people experimenting with solid fuel rockets. And this was at a time when rocketry was seen as kind of quackery. Uh, but they were able to secure funding from the government and they ended up founding uh, a place that still exists today, JPL, Jet Propulsion Laboratories. Uh, You could also say it stands for Jack Parsons Laboratories. And Parsons ends up moving Agape Lodge into uh, a mansion that he has there uh, in Pasadena. And You know, Wilfred Talbot Smith ends up kind of leaving. Crowley demotes him. Crowley begins sort of a back and forth with Parsons. I I think Crowley really liked Parsons and wanted him to sort of be his successor or mouthpiece in America. Um, And what's funny is that, like Parsons at the time, his he's very much in. This is why I said about the free love thing. he was very much into having like multiple partners and, and encouraging everyone to sort of sleep around. Um, it always and, comes back to that. Does it? I mean, it's, yeah. every time
0: you look down the occult
1: uh, mm-hmm. road,
0: especially <clears throat> cult occult road, it comes mm-hmm. back to guys that can't keep their boner in check time and time <laughs> again. And yes. I, I mean, it just yeah. cracks me up. It, it's always the fall of them. They could have had it all, you know Mm -hmm. but they just can't keep their dick in their pants so yeah uh, that's interesting so he struggled with that too
1: yeah definitely and he (laughs) ends up uh his wife ends up leaving him uh for the guy that he sort of ousted they move off together and parsons starts a relationship with his wife's little sister who was only 16 at the time which is extremely gross uh i just want to say i do not approve of this (laughs) Okay. I mean, it was a different—it was a different time, as the 1940s, but <laughs> <Right>. still gross. <laughs> right. um, so, it, it was this. Um, oh, what was her name? Susan, I think Susan Parsons. I probably got that wrong, but sh- but she is the one. Uh, eventually, a, a man that we um, most people will probably know, uh, L. Ron Hubbard, mm-hmm. ends up joining Agape Lodge, becoming fast friends with Jack Parsons. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly enough, Crowley h- hated. Elron Hubbard and told Parsons that l Ron Hubbard was a huckster and that he was scamming him and that she should stay away. He should stay away from him. Um but
0: And then Scientology, excuse me if I'm wrong here, yeah. Ren, but don't they have a term OT? I mean, they have some of the same jargon that you've mentioned yeah. within their sphere of understanding how to go in debt and buy their books. Like you have to be yeah, O T yeah. one, O T two and so Yeah.
1: On. It's it's um yeah, I think it's it stands for different things, but we have to remember that that I think Hubbard learned a lot about how to sort of create a religious organization from the time he spent in the OTO. Um, probably picked up some ideas from it um, in in sort of the mythology that he started to create. And honestly, this may be kind of a hot take, and I'm not a Scientologist, but I think that it's possible that L. Ron Hubbard did channel some legitimate stuff. He just interpreted it through his own like sort of science fiction, uh-huh. you know, writer worldview. Right. Uh-huh. But a lot of the stuff he talks about is very similar to like Gnostic thought, like the idea of, you know, archons and spirits being trapped on earth and everything. It's not that strange. I mean, he sees it through this like 1950s, like space opera lens, but it's not all that different from other kind of mythologies around the world. But um anyways, Parsons and Hubbard become fast friends, and they start doing, like, sex magic rituals together, which, from what I can tell, mainly involves them, like, jerking off together <laughs> while, like, powering up talismans <laughs> and stuff. I mean, I, I could be wrong There's about better that. better
0: ways to open a wormhole, boys. Yeah.
1: I mean, <laughs> I mean a lot of – technically, the OTO is a solar phallic sex cult okay now i can say from first experience there's not a lot of sex cult going on at the oto lodge. but in theory at least crowley described it that way and and sexual magic is something that apparently is a big deal but crowley got most of that sex magic stuff uh from like pb randolph and the hermetic brotherhood of light uh and so he, he stole a lot of that stuff um Sex magic is something that I'm not really that experienced with and it's not, has never really interested me that much, but I know a lot of people are really into it.
0: Okay. So I'm reading up on Parsons here while we're talking mm-hmm. here and he has a really tragic ending to his life. Explain uh, what mm-hmm. you know about how Jack Parsons died and maybe what he was attempting to do because his last dying words were, mm-hmm. I wasn't done. So what yeah. was it he done doing and, and explaining how he died?
1: Yeah, so Parsons, uh, him and Hubbard eventually end up doing this ritual out in the desert uh, meant to incarnate uh, one of the Philemic goddesses is Babylon. She's sort of the, the red goddess, um, sort of a representation of the divine feminine. Um, and they were trying to do this ritual on the desert to conjure Babylon and like into human form. Uh, when they got back from the desert, Marjorie Cameron, a redheaded lady, was waiting on their doorstep. Uh, and she became a lover of Parsons. Uh, eventually, Parsons' ex-wife's uh, sister that, you know, I mentioned Parsons started a relationship with, her and Hubbard start a relationship. And Hubbard eventually ends up convincing Jack Parsons to lend him this enormous sum of money so that he can do this whole, like, kind of scam involving him, like, buying yachts in Florida and, like, sailing them to California and like selling them in California to make a profit. Um, He of course takes all the money Jack Parsons gives him and just runs off and disappears and buys a yacht. Um, Parsons ended up suing him. Uh, Parsons actually ended up chasing him down to Florida and did a ritual on the beach as, as Hubbard was like sailing away in his yacht to uh, conjure a demon of storms and uh, ended up actually sinking the yacht because a storm like came out of nowhere. Um so Parsons, you know, sued Hubbard but never really like, you know, he didn't have any of the money. He spent all the money that Parsons gave him, so he didn't really get anything back out of it. And it, it left Parsons in a really bad financial state, you know. His closest sort of associates had basically stabbed him in the back. He had little to no money and he basically I think he, he ends up losing his security clearance uh because the government thinks that he's trying to steal like secrets for Israel. Um and he just basically has to get a job he starts making fireworks and stuff cuz he's you know parson's was was not like he didn't like go to school really for like rocketry like he didn't have a doctorate or anything you know he was he was largely like self-taught and like a lot of the stuff he knew about he was a genius with chemistry uh, but a lot of it was him sort of just teaching himself how to do stuff uh, so the story goes that parson's is out in his garage working on something uh the, the official story is that he was working on uh, some fireworks you know that he was building to sell, and his garage blows blows up blows sky high and kills parsons um, he doesn't die immediately you know he, i think he makes it to the hospital but but there's a lot of people who think that there's something fishy about his death um, i know nick redfern talks in final i think in final events he mentions this that there's this theory that parsons was assassinated or that he was you know he was killed by the guy i mean i i don't really have one opinion on it one way or the other because i really don't know i mean i don't understand why he would be assassinated um there's also theories that he was working on some kind of like homunculus or that he was like trying to create some kind of he was doing something like a a cultish that blew up uh, like doing alchemy or something, but I don't right. Really know. Right. I
0: mean, it seems like time and time again, you go back to, uh, you know, explosions in the Mojave Desert that ripped mm-hmm. a, a hole in space and time. And hence we yeah. have all these UFO sightings. Uh, mm-hmm. Is that what you believe?
1: I mean, I, I'm really not sure on that. I think it's a very cool idea. I, I don't, I just don't know. I mean, Nick Redfern talks about this in Final Events how. At least some people in the government thought that the UFO flaps were directly related to the Babylon working that Parsons and Hubbard did out in the desert. Right mm-hmm. when they when they they, they think that the, he maybe opened a gateway, uh, because it was not soon after that that Kenneth mm-hmm. Arnold has his sighting. You and you have these mer- first major like UFO flaps. It's mm-hmm. also the same year that Crowley dies. Right. And yeah, I mean it's it's totally possible. Uh, that the mm-hmm. whole idea of the nuclear weapon opening up a portal, you mm-hmm. know, and letting letting in these entities, uh, is actually comes from Kenneth Grant's works, and specifically this I can't remember her name. It was like the Amaranth working or something. It was like this uh, mm-hmm. this sort of mystic and challenger that he knew. And she said that like she had sort of gathered this information from the spirits that, you know, the the, the nukes had like let them in, mm-hmm. basically.
0: Wow. And time and time again, I, I mm-hmm. speak of Twin Peaks mm-hmm. in the same way that maybe Joe Rogan would talk about MMA. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like you know, I go back to the world of David Lynch and Twin Peaks mm-hmm. and Mark Frost, I feel like. Uh, he's kind of been my mentor along the way to understand Mm -hmm. these secret schools and in particular Mm -hmm. the world of the Black Lodge and the White Lodge and the Red Mm -hmm. Room and how these have kind of been my buffers along the way to understanding what you're entrenched with. Do you find that there's any connection with, uh, you know, pop culture explaining to the layman like myself (laughs) how this
1: works? Uh, With Twin Peaks, absolutely. (laughs) I mean, what's really funny about twin peaks is that so much of it i think a lot of the black lodge the mythological stuff from twin peaks i think a lot of that is mark frost because i I, like if you read his like secret history of twin peaks book like a lot of the stuff i think is Mm -hmm. stuff that he's passionate about too i think he's a big like ufo are you you
0: getting code out of mark frost that he's uh in the same kind of you know uh sanctuaries you are doing the same rituals you are is
1: he i i don't know if he's a practicing magician or anything um but i can definitely say that he is quite familiar with the works of kenneth grant uh because so much of the twin peaks mythology especially the stuff in season three is largely kenneth grant fan fiction basically um Mm -hmm. like the whole sort of purple sea you know, that, that you know, Cooper ends up going mm-hmm. to where like the giant lives and stuff. There's literally, that's literally a concept in Kenneth Grant's stuff where he talks about there being this sort of alternate dimension where these spirits like come from called the mauve zone. And mauve is like purple color, um, you know, and the whole White Lodge, Black Lodge stuff that comes from, it, it comes from like theosophy, but also to like the sort of mythology of uh mm-hmm. kenneth grant and the mythology of the golden dawn mm-hmm. um what's interesting i was i was just talking last night with alan greenfield uh on Conspire normal about the whole hellier thing mm-hmm. and how i think that that is a recruiting effort by i hate the term white lodge and black lodge like i like it in the in the se- in like the setting of twin peaks mm-hmm. but it's it's got these like kind of unfortunate maybe racial connotations you know like black being evil yeah. white being good it's just oh, you know i don't know
0: it, <laughs> i mean if you, if you go down a dark alley instead of a lit alley which one are you gonna pick i mean that's, that's true the I, that's the way i always
1: looked at it yeah, yeah yeah i don't i mean i still use those terms uh some people kind of like cringe at them but yeah i i, I do think you know, maybe not exactly in the same way as in Twin Peaks, but I do think there is such a thing as, as a as a White Lodge and a Black Lodge in this world.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like when I mentioned earlier, like the secret chiefs, I believe that there are groups of entities that, let's say they have our best intentions in mind. You know, maybe they're not all good and light and love and happiness, but they want to see humans succeed. They want to see us free, they're like spirits mm-hmm. of freedom, basically. And you have the Black Lodge, which are the spirits of uh, control, of like slavery, um, it's what a lot of people in the more conspiracy-minded world might refer to as the archons, you know, like the sort of the lords of the earth, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that these two these two ends of the spectrum, you know, freedom versus control, are constantly battling in a, in a sort of spiritual way. But they, but in order to enact their, their agendas on earth, Mm -hmm. they need, you know, surrogates, they need people to, to act for them. Right. So I think the Black Lodge seeks out the rich and the powerful, Mm -hmm. you know, the elites of this world, and try to enact systems of control upon people like, you know, unfortunately, you're seeing a lot of this with the recent quarantine, you know, what's the first thing that happens? a massive wealth transfer to the richest people in this country. Yeah, sure. People get a $1,200 check, you know, but that's scraps compared to the money that just flowed upward in the last month, you know, and I think like, that is like the black lodge working. Th- I don't, mm-hmm. I don't necessarily think it's like a little demon on some guy's shoulder or on Jeff mm-hmm. Bezos, shoulder, like whispering into his ear or anything, but it, it's more of like a, it, mm-hmm. it's more of a, like an influence. Um, and I, I think, The problem is in the last 50 years, let's say, the old mystery schools like Masonry and even the OTO, um, Mm -hmm. they've all failed to create a new generation of people uh, to be on the side of the White Lodge you know, like the mm-hmm. Bookhouse boys in Twin Peaks, you know? Right. I'm so glad you know all this. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like uh, I, at this point, I don't care mm-hmm.
0: about the audience. I'm totally geeking out. <laughs> this is Joe Rogan talking about MMA fighters. As soon as you start talking about white Lodge <laughs> house boys, I just don't care anymore what people think. So I'm glad you're going there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, there needs to be a new generation mm-hmm. of, of book house boys of people mm-hmm. who are, on the side of like freedom and life and liberty, and I think mm-hmm. the the secret chiefs or whatever you want to call them the the mm-hmm. white lodge are they 're moving things around mm-hmm. in order to recruit for their side, and I think that that 's what a lot of the stuff in hell is because I think the lema is a manifestation of that you know i don 't necessarily think the lema is the answer or even the way forward, right I think we need to come up with something new mm-hmm. Right to to replace all these old failed projects, right. um, but I do think it is the model for what I would like to see moving forward. you know I just I think a lot of the old and this is something they talk about at the end of Hellier season two about uh, I think John Tenney brings this up that maybe they want us to come up with new rituals, you know and and say all right. this old, failed stuff, just leave it leave it behind and just take mm-hmm. the, take the core of it and just mm-hmm. run with that.
0: I mean, one of the things they talk about in Mm Hillier is something that I've wondered myself being involved with the Al Moon Lab and and working with Timothy and working with Alex Whitcomb and working with you, quite frankly, and and Mm -hmm. Michelle um, and even Aaron, is that are we taking part? Are we conducting a ritual to mm-hmm. do something that we are unaware of? Is walking, you know, out mm-hmm. at night uh, amongst, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the grand dug furs with the owls above us, mm-hmm. is this a form of ritual? Uh, and mm-hmm. they get into that, but they also mm-hmm. get into, and this is where we'll kind of put a cap on our interview. Here's talking about. Pan, you've mentioned this a, a couple times, mm-hmm. and um, it's approached us here at the house, and it also approached them, and it came mm-hmm. back to Sir Nunu's and Baphomet, mm-hmm. a, a horned hoofed godman, and mm-hmm. that's not necessarily a comfortable place for most people to end up when they're just <laughs> out looking for Bigfoot. But yep. um, it, it's shocking; it's absolutely mm-hmm. shocking to have that kind of interrupt you. And say, oh, but what about Pan? Why Pan? What What is your instinct about that?
1: Pan is interesting because Pan has a real association with um, in, in mythology with Jupiter or mm-hmm. Jove. You know, this. Uh, I sort of, I sort of see Pan. As, let's say, a representation of freedom okay like representation of freedom in a like a, a, a joyful revelry sense um
0: but there's sex magic there too because yeah sir yeah. N- nunus got a big old heart on
1: yes and it's not
0: the most yeah. you know it's just an obvious mm-hmm. trait of sir nunus is it also a oh, uh, trait of pan and baphomet that they are kind of uh revelry sex gods uh
1: yeah yeah in particular, Baphomet is uh, like if you look at Baphomet, Baphomet has breasts, right, as well as this you know penis that's like shaped like a caduceus, and the idea is that he represents or it represents a synthesis of like male and female, and that that is like the primary sort of uh, core element of like thalamic magic or even sex magic. you know it is the union of different polarities. So male, female, hot, cold, light, dark, mixing those two things together to create a third thing, like to create a synthesis of it. Um, And I I think Baphomet especially is a representation of that because it blends elements of uh, the divine and the infernal, the male and the female, and it takes them all and and sort of shows you an amalgam of those things. pan in particular and you're totally right about it being also like like uh a, having a sexual element to it right mm-hmm. part of me and maybe this is just i'm just riffing here part of me wonders if it isn't a call for like a return to nature you know like a return to maybe a deeper connection with the land um i i know especially in in british psychic questing stuff which uh, I think has a lot of parallels with Hellier. A lot of it is about landscape magic, about reforging a relationship to your local environment, uh, to the hills and valleys and stuff. And and realizing that those, those places have spirits of their own. You know, like your river, uh, your river isn't just water. You know, your river has a name and it has an intelligence behind it you know, and a, a mountain isn't just rocks piled up, you know, it isn't just earth. Uh, mm-hmm. Mountains have spirits, you know, I, I think a lot of other cultures get this, but it it is a thing that modern Western culture has completely forgotten, you know, and I think maybe the, the image of Pan coming back and, and synchronistically appearing for all these different groups of people is maybe a call to remember that about mm-hmm. where we live. So it's more of a fertility symbol uh,
0: towards the land as far as providing mm-hmm. a relationship between man and it the created, yeah,
1: yeah, like reminding us mm-hmm. that we we live on a we live on a planet that right now is existing in a a sort of precarious manner, right? Like I know different people have different opinions on climate change, whether or not it is uh, caused by humans, whether or not it's not. Um, You know, people have different opinions about whether or not it's even real or happening. I will say that a lot of people talk about like, you know, we're destroying the planet. Like, no, we're not destroying the planet. The planet's gonna be fine we're destroying our ability to live on the planet (laughs) comfortably, you know, like, and
0: I think that was, that was a really good quote. I've never heard anybody explain it that way. Say Mm -hmm. that again. So that sinks into people.
1: Yeah. So we're not destroying the planet. Mm -hmm. There's nothing we could do to destroy this planet. It's going to exist regardless Mm -hmm. of whether or not we can live on it or not, because it existed for millions of years before we, evolved Mm -hmm. and it will exist for millions of years after the last human dies. Mm -hmm. Um, What we're doing to it is destroying our ability to live on it. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of this is in the service of enriching a very small group of people, right? It's like we're, we're tearing up our house to serve the interests of like Mm -hmm. one particular small group of people, Mm -hmm. And I think we've got to, like, take that back, you know.
0: But what you're describing, Wren, is almost like they're conducting a ritual of wealth transfer. I mean, all mm-hmm. these moves, all these pawns being played out and taken down to mm-hmm. to to play this cosmic chess match sounds mm-hmm. like we're involved in a ritual. This is all by design. They have moves that they're making. They press on the gas, they press on mm-hmm. the brake, they press on the gas
1: some more. Mm-hmm. Is that what you think is going on? Well, you know, like Billy Shakespeare said, <laughs> all the world's a play and or all the world's mm-hmm. a stage and we're the mm-hmm. players. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I do think that we're, I mean, I think that that's that's a description of history in general, mm-hmm. right?
0: But it's there so hard is, for people to believe that because they, mm-hmm. they think of themselves as free agents.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's I think you've got to realize that the way you think, the things you believe, none of this comes from you. I mean, it comes from your experiences, right? But those experiences are also filtered through your culture and what you see on TV and stuff. Like people... Um, I get very conspiratorial when it comes to this because I I think that 50, I don't think the MKUltra program like ever ended really. And like 50 years of MKUltra have really smoothed over the brains of a lot of Americans. And I think people, like people don't realize like, like school curriculums, for example, you know, when I was in school, I never learned anything about capital or labor or like, you know, the labor movement, for instance, and then I I go read now, I go read all these stories about uh, Pinkertons, like, firing upon strikers, and, you know, like, who are striking coal mines, and like, all this crazy violence that happened at the beginning of the century, most people don't even know this stuff, because it isn't taught in schools, because schools are teaching you a very specific history, and people tend to not realize how the way they see the world is, like, filtered through that you know? And there's no easy answer to that other than just read a lot, you know? Read read opinions that don't agree with you and read right. things that interest you. And you, know, you really have to have like a broad view of things. Um, but but history is a narrative. History is a fiction, you know? It belongs to the victors and it is... It, history is co-opted uh, by many groups to fit their agendas.
0: Describe what you think about the current global pandemic, as far as us being Mm -hmm. in this very liminal state, there's Mm -hmm. a a lot of um, conjecture involved with how a liminal state will affect the supernatural Mm -hmm. in general. It Mm -hmm. seems like a time of invocation to the supernatural when you're in it. I've experienced it myself. Mm -hmm. I believe uh, you have as well. So do you think that we're in the midst of something close to like a uh, I don't know, a worldwide mass sighting of some kind that will present itself?
1: Hmm. I I've thought about this in the past uh, week or so, um, because if we are, you know, a lot of people like ourselves have said this about liminality and have said that, you know, UFO flaps perceive these sort of big world events and, and this type of stuff like Jung talks about in his book about flying saucers. Um, so it's, it's totally possible that there might be a big uptick in the paranormal in the coming weeks and months. Um, I really don't know. I, I do think there is something strange in the air because like a, like I was saying before the show, this hasn't necessarily changed the, like the way I live my day-to-day life because I didn't go out much to begin with other than, you know, to go to the lodge and do magic stuff and go see my girlfriend, but uh <laughs> I'm not a big bar flyer or anything, so it's not like a huge loss for me, but I I, but I see how it's affecting other people, and like when I do have to go out in the public to get groceries and stuff, there is this real sense of like doom in the air, you know, like just it feels, everybody feels anxious, uh, you know, people are staying away from each other, it it feels scary out there, mm-hmm. you know, it really does, and that is something that I've I've never Felt before in my life growing up. You know, I'm, I've just turned 35. I've never experienced anything like this in my entire life. The closest I could come to was like the day after 9 11, you know, like, but it's been like the day after 9 11, but mm-hmm. for like a month now, <laughs> <Right>? you know, <laughs> like yeah. it just won't end. And, and I don't think it's going to end anytime mm-hmm. soon. And a, a part of it is a little exciting. And I, I hate to say it because I'm not excited about people dying. People, mm-hmm. please don't take that the wrong way. But I think now is the, the best time there's ever been in the West for there to be like a real revolution. I don't know if that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Probably won't. Um because yeah, most revolutions
0: are bloody. I mean, yeah, the ones yeah. that make change.
1: Yeah, and you know, that's, that's not necessarily something I'm looking forward to. Mm-hmm. But I really worry about what's going to shake out in the next couple of weeks. You know, people's rents are coming due. Um, if people... You know, if all these landlords start evicting people from there, because not all places right. put this is good eviction warrants in place. This is a good time for you to mention your Patreon page. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and I think like I don't know, man. I, you know, I I read a lot of lefty stuff, so I'm more familiar with this than most people. But maybe people should go look up to what happened to the landlords after Mao took over in China, because it wasn't pretty. The <laughs> Landlords did not uh not not get a, a great end of the no, stick. No, and they're point. still
0: not. I mean, there's the uh, ordinances coming down in uh, certain
1: states and cities where mm-hmm, the l- mm-hmm. landlords have been hung out to dry. Yeah, but the the thing is, is like, w- what are people going to do? And if people start getting thrown out of their homes, you know, because uh, I think, did you see the, the unemployment numbers are insane? Like six something, seven million people filing mm-hmm. unemployment claims. Like this is the, it, the, I saw a graph of like, this compared to the 2008 recession. And it was like nothing, you know, like that has ever been seen in American history. Yeah, 7 million and one. <laughs> <By> yeah, <way. laughs> it's, it's completely insane. And if, and if our government can't get it together and get people the assistance they need, I don't know what's going to happen because people are going to start getting desperate and desperate people do desperate things. And I don't want there to be mass violence, but I don't know. I'm not counting out that possibility um hopefully that won't happen and this will all blow over and you know everything is going to go back to normal but uh i don't know um i don't don't think everything's going to go back to normal we'll see
0: well our guest today has been rin collier uh i would call him a magician a very good magician and a kind man and a talented remote viewer rin do you have anything that uh you want to promote anything coming up are you uh have anything
1: stashed away for 2020? <laughs> well, um, mostly, I mean, people, if people want to read some of my writings, um, I have a blog at liminalroom.com. Um, it's not updated super frequently, but I do have some things in there people might enjoy. Um, I also have a list of like different podcasts and stuff I've been on. People are, want to listen to me more. Um, I also am on Twitter at, uh, at liminalbird. People want to listen to that. Or, uh, you know, go go check me out there. And um, I also run a Discord server uh, with some friends that is largely uh, themed around the occult. And uh, I think I've built a pretty pretty solid occult community with a lot of really helpful, knowledgeable people. So if people would like uh, an invite to that, feel free to hit me up on Twitter or um, send me an email. My, my contact info is on my blog. Perfect. And uh, people can
0: find you almost... On uh, once a month, on where do the road go? Uh, you're quite the yeah. uh, player there too. So, mm-hmm. hey, thanks for coming on and talking to me, Rin. Yeah, thanks for inviting me, Tebby. It was fun. Yeah, you bet. All right, man. Be safe out there. Uh, you too. Have a good night. Well, when it comes to ritual sex magic, I don't think I could have picked a better person to go into the details with it. Um, I really appreciate uh, Rin coming on and talking about it openly and honestly, and yeah, there's a giggle factor with this, but as I said, steep in uh, historical fact and historical lore, uh, but a lot of fact in there, too, when it comes especially to uh, Crowley and Jack Parsons. Dig into the world and the life of, of Jack Parsons, uh, that, that deserves its own two-hour episode for sure. Okay, so this week I'll be headed down to the Al Moon Lab area. I guarantee you I'll be recording. And um, I'll come back hopefully with some some more goodies. Thanks to everybody who's ordered the book. Again, it's three bucks. Download it. Uh, it's all yours once you do. That's at patreon.com forward slash Radio, And it will... you all the content you want for three bucks a month a lot of goodies on there and so check that out and thanks again for subscribing sharing and checking out the new content that we have on youtube with our strange strolls one of the things i'm going to be doing this weekend is rolling a night a lot of nighttime footage and uh, making sure i secure the uh, capabilities of this canon for better nighttime quality footage for the next strange troll Until next time, my folks, I'm out of here, and I will see you in the trees.